What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome three club owners and bookers from around the country for a discussion about the state of the rock club industry. And later on, Greg and I will review the new records from Randy Newman and Spiritualized. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Yes, Greg, for the third or fourth time in their half-century career, the Rolling Stones were free to sign to a new record company, and they did. Their deal with EMI was up, and now they have signed to Universal's Polydor label. The record company was, of course, crowing about this victory, acting as if it was, you know, know, they just signed the hottest band in the world. In fact, what does it mean to sign the Rolling Stones in 2008? They remain a touring juggernaut. They can rake in more cash on the stadium tour that comes every two or three years than just about any band out there. But as our old uh, Chicago rock crit colleague Bill Wyman pointed out in a very funny story he did on his hitsville.org website, he said, if I were writing this story, it would read like this. EMI walked away from its long-term industry relationship with the Rolling Stones today, showing how little force the band retains in the retail marketplace. Hmm. While the Stones remain rock's touring kings, their last tour grossed more than half a billion dollars. EMI was selling only about a million copies a year in total of the two dozen albums or so that it distributed, about as much as the Eagles' greatest hits sells annually. One of the best Rolling Stones albums, one of the most popular, Sticky Fingers, only sold 48,000 copies last year. Yeah. And, you know, when the Rolling Stones release a new album, it don't sell no more. People, you know, get excited about the tour. Some of them buy in advance, as a, almost as a tour souvenir, new albums. But the albums don't have an impact, and, they, and arguably they have not since Some Girls in 1978. This is one of those scenarios where my gun is bigger than your gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got the Rolling Stones. It's, it's kind of one of those heritage-type bands that you could say, well, now they're on our label. But uh, as Wyman pointed out in his column, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. At the same time, you poo-poo 48,000, 50,000 records in a year. That's better than 90% of the albums sold in the country. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, sure. 50,000 but... records would put keep a lot of independent labels in business. You I know? agree, but the Arcade Fire doesn't cost you what the Rolling Stones do. Meanwhile, Jim, the Stones are off to a uh, banging start with uh, Universal. They're suing one of Universal's artists. Actually, the Stones publishing company is suing one of Universal's artists. Lil Wayne, who used the Stones song Play With Fire interpolating it for his new song, Playing With Fire, from his latest album, The Carter Three. So let's take a listen to both songs and see if the Stones have a claim or not. Here's a little bit of the Stones' original, Play With Fire. The old man took her diamonds and she 
tiaras by the score Now she gets her kicks in Stepney Not in Knightsbridge anymore So don't play with me Cause you're playing with And now here's Lil Wayne's interpretation of that song, Playing With Fire. So you've got so many diamonds You wear all the finest clothes And you grill is As you're driving down the streets of gold So it sounds like the Rolling Stones publishing company has a case, just judging by that little example oh, there. Oh, I don't know. You know, <laughs> Lil Wayne is, is playing with fire, and the Stones was play with. Those are completely different. They're suing him for copyright infringement. They might have a case there. He apparently thought he could get away with this by not giving them any kind of a publishing credit. As many artists have found out, if you mess with some of those big names from the 60s, whether it's the Beatles or the Stones, you are going to get sued if you don't give them proper publishing credit. My favorite part of this, though, Greg, is that ABCO, in a statement, the Rolling Stones publishing company, said that Little Wayne's version uses, quote, explicit, sexist, and offensive language <laughs> that could, you know, lead people to think less of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, of course, being a band that, among other things, recorded, you know, brown sugar, heard them with the women. Stray Cat Blues, you know, about underage sex. You know, yeah, I mean, The Rolling Stones were all about good yeah, taste. They yeah. Were, yeah, they were clean-cut boys from the 60s. We know that all about the Stones. If anything, Little Wayne is enhancing their reputation. <laughs> Greg, we've talked a few times in recent weeks about the resurgence of vinyl in the record industry being one ray of hope in otherwise dire times for people buying recorded music. Well, there's another format that we have to mourn. It's passing into obsolescence, the cassette tape. Recently, just a week or two ago, none of the top ten albums on the Billboard Albums chart were issued on cassette. Half of them were released on vinyl, Mm -hmm. but none were issued on cassette tape. Cassettes boomed starting in 79 when Sony introduced the Walkman. It seems kind of comical now. This thing weighed, you know, about as much as a brick. But it was, you know, this new, slim, portable convenience of carrying this tape player. Right. Audiophiles never loved cassettes. The sound wasn't very good. They were hissy. They could get tangled up. They could break. They were just a pain in the neck. But cassette singles were cheap. You liked one or two songs from an album, you could buy them. Retailers loved them because they replaced the old vinyl 45 and kids could still buy one or two songs at a time when all they had was three bucks in their pocket, right? But the numbers have been going steadily down. They peaked at 18 million cassettes sold in 1994, sank to 480,000 by 2007, and the Consumer Electronics Association now predicts that sales will be at a mere 86,000 by 2012. In other words, for all intents and purposes, the cassette is history. Well, consider that it was the first triumph of 
portability and convenience versus fidelity. We've had this debate recently with MP3 files and C, you know versus CDs and right. vinyl. But back in the early 80s, I mean, it was it was a shock. You could carry around your record collection, or at least mm-hmm. part of it. And the other thing I loved about it, Jim, and I think uh, an entire generation, a couple of generations, grew up with the idea that you could finally personalize your record collection right. in a really exciting way. I mean, the whole idea of that mixtape, you know, the, the the whole premise of the movie High Fidelity, the whole mm-hmm. idea of cataloging your life on the side of a C90 cassette, you know, and handing it to a friend say, here, listen to this. This is my life in 45 minutes. Or wooing a girlfriend or a boyfriend with a, with a mixtape. I mean, that's that's where that all started. Now, obviously, we've become a much more refined society technologically uh, and have, have left the cassette behind. But I think it still has a very uh, important place in the hearts of a couple of generations of music lovers. Well, it's, it's too true. You know, when you give somebody a mixed CD, it's too tempting to fast forward, you know, or just skip right. to the next track, <laughs> whereas it was a little more troublesome on a cassette. But the, the, the plus side, I think, for independent musicians is that you can now go on eBay and buy cassette four tracks for like nothing. Right, yeah. and I think that there's going to be a fetishistic cult that arises for cassettes the same way there is for eight-track tapes. Not a lot of people, but a few. Elvis Costello, of course, with Clubland. Uh, Jim, I can't think of two things that belong together more than rock music and rock clubs. Absolutely. We cannot imagine one without the other. Everybody's had a formative experience going to a rock club, enjoying music, seeing a great band for the first time, seeing a new band for the first time, and, and thinking about that show 30 years later and how it changed your life. Now more than ever... The clubs around North America in particular are playing a huge role in the way music is spread around the country. They always have, but with record sales declining, this is the way the vast majority of bands in America playing music make their living. I hear what you're saying, Greg, but meanwhile, clubs are under siege from the same corporate forces that are tearing through the rest of the music world. The Beatles didn't play at the Japanese stereo company Cavern Club in Liverpool. (laughs) They played at the Cavern Club, okay? You're increasingly seeing these giant mega promoters, most notably Live Nation, the monolithic giant that's taken over 80-something percent of the music world, trying to get into the small clubs, the places that the the mom and pops, just like the small record stores, have built from uh, blood, sweat, and tears over the years to showcase music. When I say blood, sweat, and tears, I'm not exaggerating. To run a music venue and a bar in a major city is really difficult. You are, are subject to hundreds of city codes and safety ordinances and just plain old pain-in-the-neck neighbors who you know move into the neighborhood because it's a hip-happening strip and the rock club made it that way, and then they complain about noise. Yes, Jim, the pressure on the clubs has been exacerbated, especially since 2003 when we had those twin disasters at clubs. Uh, the uh, station in Rhode Island where 100 people died in a fire caused by a band, and in Chicago at the E2 nightclub, where a fight broke out and 21 people were trampled to death. Ever since then, uh, there's been extra scrutiny at clubs uh, for safety violations around the country. You know, and with good reason. You want to root out the clubs that aren't doing it well, but so many clubs are doing it well and are doing their jobs at the optimum level, and yet they're still facing this tremendous amount of pressure from uh, city government and police. These are some of the issues that we wanted to explore with a panel of club owners and bookers from across the country. They happen to descend on Chicago 
for the Ticket Web Conference. We spoke with Sean Agnew of R5 Productions in Philadelphia, Mitchell Franks, who runs Spaceland Echo and Echoplex in L.A., and Jake Zovnarowski of Rocks Off Concert Promotions in New York City. Guys, this is a uh, crisis era we've been hearing over and over again in the music industry. CD sales are plummeting 25% since the year 2000. What's it like in the clubs? Uh, let's start off with Mitchell in, in Los Angeles. Mitchell, what's business been like for the clubs in, in L.A.? I think this last year has been okay, has been great on the club side. It depends on the artist. But it's kind of a tough business to be in uh, in L.A. because five or ten years ago I'd had very little competition. Now I've got... You know, all the big brothers kind of sticking their hand in my back pocket. And by but, that, you mean like the clear channels of the world? Yeah, well, Live, Live Nations Nation. and AEGs and, you know, everybody who they can't seem to make a dollar on the big shows, so they got to make, you know, 10 cents on the small shows. You know, what's happened to the retail industry with Walmart coming in and, and, you know, suddenly everything is the bigger mega complex on the fringes of town and the mom and pop stores get driven out of business. Most of your business is in, in the mom and pop world, the clubs that matter. Are you all having a, a bit of a challenge because of that big brother kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a, you know, generally everyday struggle dealing with them and uh, the amount of funds that they have available to them is obviously far greater than probably almost every independent promoter combined. The fact that they can just come in and basically, you know, blow you out of the water as far as payments to bands, it generally makes it uh, difficult to say the least. So, Sean, that's the story in Philly. Jake, what about New York? Uh, yeah, it's the same situation. Uh, you know, if, up till a few years ago, uh, Live Nation was really the only big promoter in town. And, and if you didn't want to work with them, you had a lot of other options. And now you've got uh, Live Nation, the Bowery Presents, AEG, and even Metropolitan. Now that there's more increased competition between the bigger promoters, they've dipped down to our level. And they're, okay, well, if we lose money on this band when it does 300 people or 500 people or 600 people – then they think they can make the money back up. You know, you guys all have thick skins and you have uh, hard-nosed senses of humor. <laughs> but, but I do feel for you because it's hard to say to the consumer. Consumer thinks you're complaining, well, Live Nation poached a show from Spaceland or from R5 in Philly. And, well, you know, I'm getting to see the band I want, right? What's the problem? Why shouldn't the band get paid top dollar? But it becomes a question of the environment in which you see a band. We went out and taped a show at uh, Maxwell's in Hoboken a couple of weeks ago. You know, Todd Abramson is Maxwell's. That place has a heart and soul, just like Steve McClellan, you know, for years was uh, 7th Street and 1st Avenue in Minneapolis. I mean, the great clubs have a vibe. I- I've been to Spaceland. I mean, you know, it's got a, it's got a wonderful vibe, a warm and inviting yes. feeling. And there ain't no corporate promotion up the wazoo on your stage. <laughs> There's zero promotion on the stage. Because in the day and age where CDs aren't selling, I don't have any major label or label support. And so I've had to hire my own teams and go out there and sell this artist and put my whole, basically put my nuts on the line for an artist and say, okay, we're going to take this risk and we think this artist is the next whatever. It's going to be the biggest things that we've seen in a long time. And then what happens, they do become the next biggest thing. And before you know it, you're asking for a logo rather than any economic involved, involvement on the artist on a big show. And, and the answer is just no. Are, are you seeing that in, in Philly, uh, Sean? Well, some part. I'd say that uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the way you treat a band early on, too. That if you're, And I think that's our big advantage versus the Live Nations versus the AGs, that we're actual people with personalities who are there day-to-day dealing with the operations of the club. 
and can kind of sort of actually care about the music, interact with the people that were just not at some, you know, corporate level where we're like, oh, this band's big, okay, sure thing. You know, we actually have an interest in the bands, and I feel that that makes a big difference, getting bands to come back and do shows with you or even trying to wrangle away bands that normally play those larger rooms like, hey, why don't you come out and try something a little bit different? Just the small little things that, like you said in that uh, Walmart analogy where that's what the mom and pop stores do. You know, it's, it's about customer service. It's about treating the bands right. Sean, you brought up ticket prices, and I think that's an excellent point in terms of what's the best deal out there. Uh, obviously, when you're, when you're dealing with an AEG or a Live Nation, you, you're, you're dealing with companies with basically unlimited resources, soon-to-be in-house ticketing agencies. They can do a lot more advertising. But you have to advertise, too. You guys have to make a living. What are the tensions there in terms of keeping prices at a reasonable level, and where have ticket prices gone for you guys in the last five years? Mitchell, do you want to start with that? Sure. I mean, I had an agent at a major agency told me uh, about two weeks ago that 14 is the new 10. <laughs> and, and I thought, and it's like, it's bull. It's not the new 10. You know, we're in a recession. Uh, you know, it's like the beginning of this year, I, I, you know, I met with my partners and we brought down the price, our drink prices. We talked about bringing down ticket prices because I know that this gas pinch is not going to, it's not going to be short-lived. I think that we, we all have to make reparations to, to make sure that, that we're all going to be in business for the next year. And how do you process the tickets? Do you have your own in-house ticketing or do, do people have to use one of the big agencies in order to get a ticket to a, to a show at uh, Spaceland or Echo? Well, we, we were with TicketWeb before they were bought by uh, Ticketmaster and we're still with uh, TicketWeb and they're a little bit slightly uh, less fees than Ticketmaster and we just kind of renegotiated the whole the fee structure. So actually as of today, I'm happy to say that our, our ticket prices almost match our day of show price. So if you buy an $8 ticket, it's, it's about a $2 fee, and that's the same price we charge at, at the door. It's tough when you, you know, you're going up against someone that just has unlimited, you know, they can just issue more stock or whatever it is that they do. Or they, well, the music's a loss leader. It's like Best Buy is selling boomboxes. Uh, I mean, they want to sell boomboxes, so the CDs are the loss leader. You know, for a lot of these big companies, it's, it's about the advertising at the amphitheater, not the ticket price. Well, it's also about F&B. It's also about the food and beverage. Mm. You know, once you walk mm. in there... Some of these places basically run their, sh- you know, their shows based on what they can get at the bar. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, more with our panel of club bookers and promoters, and later on, Greg and I will review the new albums from Randy Newman and Spiritualized. The group wins the set gonna start She says, I know that girl There's a tattoo on her heart She pivots in red And abandons the stage 
Sexy love ricochets round everyone's paw. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg Cott and I are going to continue our conversation with our panel of club owners, Sean Agnew of R5 Productions in Philadelphia, Mitchell Franks of Spaceland, Echo, and Echoplex in Los Angeles, and Jake Zubnarowski of Rocks Off Concert Promotions in New York City. I asked Jake about the pressures of running a rock club in a major city like New York. Jake, in New York, you know, New York is is probably even worse than Chicago. One of the stories Greg and I have to write all the time is how difficult, increasingly difficult, this city is making it for small clubs. I mean, we have some of the best clubs in America here, right? You know, Empty Bottle and Metro and Shubas. And forever, they're being legislated against and noise complaints and the yuppie condo development next door that suddenly, you know, they want to be in the city. And, but but it's noisy outside that bar, <laughs> you know. Mm, right. Are you? I mean, it's got to be worse in New York. Yeah, you see that everywhere. And in New York City, a lot of the six hundred capacity or less clubs have moved out to Brooklyn, where there's less stringent laws and less bags. Though that's, uh, <laughs> you know, Williamsburg, which was. Are you sure? <laughs> Williamsburg was, uh, you know, a big hipster enclave for a long time, and now there's there's. You know, luxury condos going up. Yeah. Uh, but what does it do to your prices to operate in New York City where you have to jump through 100 million hoops? It's not so much jumping through the hoops. I mean, because we can charge people $8 for, uh, for a drink and they don't <coughs> cry as much as they would maybe at Spaceland. And Mitchell, you said 14 is the new 10. And in New York City, you know, you go to McDonald's and a Happy Meal is, is $6. But I think a big part of the problem with the rising prices is the corporate promoters. They, corporate promoters. I don't really want to whine too much about them. Why? Well, I do, but (laughs) these guys just shouldn't be in the local and developmental club business. They Mm -hmm. own the buildings. Once, you know, once we develop an act up to a thousand seats, like there's really nothing we can do with it because they own the House of Blues. They own the Fillmore. They own all these rooms. So if they want to let us in and they want to give us 200 bucks and we'll send an email blast, they will. But when they want to come down into the less than thousand capacity range i feel like they just start throwing their money around to get their shows and like they'll pay a band six thousand dollars when the band's really only worth 3500 bucks and the agents will take that and i think there's got to be a little more understanding between the agents and the promoters like the agents just take the money the agents really need to manage the expectations of the of the manager and the artist and say yeah these guys will pay you seven thousand dollars you know play that twelve dollar show or that ten dollar show and take a little less money this time and develop yourself into a you know, developing a, a career. But what are you seeing in, in Philly, Sean? That's what I was going to say is that I feel like that's our biggest asset, whereas a live nation tends to just throw money around at problems and they don't necessarily know how to advertise to, you know, to an street. indie crowd or a street crowd where, you know, they'll take out 
an $800 ad in the paper. They'll do this. They'll do this. We don't have any print advertising right now in Philadelphia. We have a really direct email list on MySpace page, a website mm-hmm. that you know reaches out. And again, like being at you know local stores and being part of the community, I feel like that's the biggest strength as an independent promoter. What I've discovered is that when fan when bands are more in touch with their careers, they understand about ticket prices. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of I think a lot of fans misunderstand that they they're reluctant to blame the band when they're when they're paying more for a ticket. But ultimately, the band can decide. You know, Paul we, McCartney will try to shuffle off on everybody else that he's charging two hundred fifty dollars a ticket or three hundred fifty dollars a ticket. You know, ultimately, you know, eventually you say, but it is your decision after all, right? Well, yeah. We we are talking to three of the uh, the most prominent club bookers in America today: Sean from Philadelphia, Mitchell from uh, L.A., and Jake from New York. We, we dodge that question of municipal problems. <laughs> Again, in Chicago, it seems like live music that isn't on the level of Taste of Chicago or Lollapalooza is consistently demonized ever since the uh, E2 incident and, and the Rhode Island club fire. Is this just no, Chicago? It's, or it's, it's harder and harder. There's a club to be nameless in L.A. that's in Hollywood in a mall, and they're fighting. This, the city is fighting them on their, on their conditional uh, operating con- permit, and they got them on things like Duplicate ABC um, licenses at each bar, so that you can't make an actual copy of it and stick it up. You have to have the you have to pay extra money and get the duplicate <laughs> up. It's just crazy how they're how they're going about it um, with the city. And I think that you know, like what we provide is, I think, artistic entertainment. Yeah, and actually, well, on some nights, <laughs> we actually do a lot of our shows outside of clubs and do them in you know church basements, warehouses, art galleries, a lot of what I guess you can call alternative spaces, which never were meant to be used as a concert hall. In downtown Philly, Sean? Yes. Talking about? Yeah. And, and, and uh, how does that fly with the authorities? Well, let's just say, early in the uh, 2000s, it was a, um, a big mess, and, you know, there's constant, you know, fighting with the city. Actually, in our circumstance, the community, like you were saying, with people, you know, of all ages, a grassroots movement started where basically it got to be too intense and too much attention, where the city just sort of like, all right, you know, this isn't such a bad thing. Then all of a sudden, the you know tourism marketing corporation of our cities asking us for uh, you know press releases to include in their uh, you know <laughs> travel guides and yeah. oh yeah. hey maybe you want to you know be involved with this and this and this activity. So you know in about eight years we actually came from being you know, being the scourge of society where everyone hated us and the you know running away from cops and so now where the actually city you know sort of promotes us and we get along great with them and they actually see it as you know a good activity to have people you know going to these shows. At least right now, you know, it's not that big of a problem. And uh, a good example was the building that we use primarily is the basement of the First Unitarian Church. Next door to it's a large com- apartment complex, and it just got bought out by a condo developer. So then a different sort of, you know, people from a different economic background are coming into the neighborhood, and they see these, you know, concerts with kids hanging out outside, you know, running back and forth. And they actually got in touch with the city to try to, you know, get us kicked out of the church mm-hmm. and we've been there now for 13 years the condo building is maybe a year or two old mm-hmm. at this point and the city actually defended our right to be there saying you wow. Know, that, yeah, wow. <laughs> that we were there you know this I'm is moving from, to philly yeah. not <laughs> happening in chicago <laughs> exactly. yeah, that you know it's basically it's this is safe it's you know sound we've ex- inspected the building they're up to code they're doing everything correctly you know you live in a city deal with it is there any particular stigmas attached to certain kinds of music uh as a result I mean, when I, when I left Wetlands, and it, I didn't really leave. I mean, it closed. 
I had a no headache policy, and right at the top of that was hip hop. I'd, I'd say for us that we we don't do too much of the hip hop, and that generally I do does underground hip hop. Yeah, exactly. And I'd say that's almost a different. Yeah, it's back crowd. back it's carrying it, kids. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. you're likely to so see it's the it. atmosphere atmosphere kind of group. That you're more groups. likely to see, I guess, a, like a kid at that show who then will be at you know your next indie rock or like hardcore show a couple of days later. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. I'd say even is it saying your insurance contract where you're not allowed to do a hip hop show or I'm not allowed to do well. No, in my 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 old insurance, I couldn't do yeah. hip hop or hardcore punk rock. Wow. Well, the wow. The, the skinhead hardcore punk uh, element, there was a lot of controversy with that in Chicago <laughs> in the '80s. But you know, 20 years on. We don't see those kind of difficulties with that with that genre of music. But do you are you, are you saying that that's still an issue with, with oh, yeah. some of your clubs? Definitely. Yeah, I, I it's still just morphed. Do. It's morphed to even more aggressive. Yeah, I, I'm not really? sure if you guys are. Yeah, there's a there's a large problem across the country now actually with uh, relating to hardcore violence at shows where it's not any longer just fists. Now it's actually it's starting to relate to what we're talking about hip hop issues like people bringing guns into the clubs. And there was an yeah. incident in Arizona where. I believe a machine gun was actually used at a show. Oh, my God. In New York, I do a fair amount of punk and hardcore shows. And I'll always know if there's five bands, you know, the top three, and sometimes five. But there's always that one or two at the bottom where you you actually have to research on, do some research and figure out if it's going to work or not. And, you know, I have situations where you're like, look, I can take this tour, but I can't take this act. Because some of them are are affiliated with gangs, and it's not even so much the band, but there's certain hardcore gangs that will follow these bands around and then come and start problems at your show and you really have to watch out for that and when you you know it's happened to me unfortunately where i i, I didn't know going into it that somebody was you know there, there was going to be involvement like that we want to thank three of the most prominent uh, bookers in the country for being on the show today uh that is uh, sean agnew from philadelphia mitchell frank from los angeles jake zafanarski from uh, new york we appreciate you guys being on sound opinions uh, we appreciate Great. you having us guys thanks, thanks a lot, a lot. Night. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, what better way for us to wrap up our uh, panel discussion on Clubland than to talk about some of our experiences in rock clubs. We talked a couple weeks ago to the Feelys at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. It's where I grew up. Literally, it's where I learned to love live music. And for me, that, that defined the ideal rock club experience. What happens in a rock club that's so much different than a bigger theater or, Lord knows, a shed or one of these big outdoor festivals? There's an intimacy, a really up-close feeling that you have with the performers where you're almost in the band, especially at a small club of two or 300 people like Lounge Acts in Chicago was or Maxwell's in Hoboken is. You're basically on stage with the band. Yeah. I remember in 1984, I was only uh, in my second year of college, I went to Maxwell's to see Husker Du from Minneapolis on New Year's Eve. That night, they played this then recent album that they had just released in order, in its entirety, their epic double album, Zen Arcade. From beginning to end. That's pretty cool. One of the most massive punk rock epics in history. One of the most ambitious punk rock recordings. Their their version of Tommy, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, how could a three-piece punk band do something so audacious? And it was even better live. But the best part of it was, after this amazing night of music and it's New Year's Eve, you know, people are in the front bar partying and I was just lingering in the back. I was like, I couldn't move after hearing this music. Grant Hart, the drummer and one of the songwriters, Bob Mould, the guitarist, vocalist, and the other songwriter... 
they stripped down because they were so hot after playing to their underwear and began wrestling in the middle of this club. And I was just, I had never seen anything like that. They were both wrestling aficionados at that time. Bob was much bigger than he is now. She had these two sweaty, 300 pound, sumo wrestlers, scary punks yeah. wrestling in their underwear. You, you are not going to see that on a Live Nation shed stage. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't have a recording of that night. I'm, I'm sure glad I don't have a video. But this is a version of one of those songs from Zen Arcade, What's Going On, from a club in New Haven, Connecticut in 87. It's on The Living End, which is a great Who's Could Do live album on Sound Opinions. recording of what's going on from Husker Du on Sound Opinions. Uh, Jim, uh, that's a hilarious story. (laughs) All true. All true. Uh, Distilling my club experience to one event or one show is nearly impossible. But uh, if I was forced to do it, I would have to say one of the most eye-opening experiences I ever had at at a club was uh, going to see Ron Hardy spin records at a club called The Music Box in Chicago in the mid-80s. Ron Hardy was one of the lesser-known house DJs in Chicago at the time. Everybody was talking about Frankie Knuckles at the Warehouse or Farley Funk, people like this who had international reputations. But Hardy owned Chicago, or at least for a uh, segment of time there. And what he did that was unique among all the house DJs in Chicago was that he united various strands of the underground music scene in Chicago. In other words, he wasn't just playing for the hardcore house underground crowd. Uh, you know, there was a heavy Latino and black and gay crowd at, at Knuckles' warehouse. But you didn't really see too many leather-clad rockers in there. Well, Ron Hardy had the hardcore punks, the skinheads, the guys in the black leather jackets and the jackboots, and he united all these factions with these really rowdy dance parties at Music Box. I mean, this club was a hole. It was a, it was a cavern on Lower Wacker, a godforsaken piece of property below the main city if you're in, not- in downtown Chicago. Chicago. If you're not from Chicago, Lower Wacker is where the Dark Knight, a lot of it was filmed. Yeah, okay? exactly. It's it's a pretty spooky place. And there was no ventilation in there. There was sweat coming off the walls all the time. And the juxtapositions that he was creating, he was playing classic Chicago house, 
Detroit Techno, all the great stuff from New York like Liquid Liquid and ESG. And then he was mixing in rock tracks. You know, you'd hear Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but he'd also hear the B-52s. You'd hear a little bit of the cult sanctuary, you know, as a, as a mix. There were these extraordinary juxtapositions, these really surprising tracks that he'd pull out of nowhere. And he had an entire club of misfits dancing together to this music. And that, to me, was the democracy of the dance floor. I never saw it in action better than at Ron Hardy's Music Box. An example of what he was doing at that time, one of the biggest hits ever out of the Chicago house scene was the 1986 track called Love Can't Turn Around, sung by Daryl Pandy, this amazing vocalist who had like this four-octave range. It was written by Farley Funk and uh, Vince Lawrence and mixed by Jesse Saunders, a veritable who's who of Chicago house music. And I heard this track a lot at Hardy's Club. Here it is, Love Can't Turn Around on Sound Opinions. Can't Turn Around from Daryl Pandy, Jesse Saunders, Farley Funk, and Vince Lawrence, a classic Chicago house track. If you want to share some of your music club memories, give us a call at 1-888-859-1800 or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back in a minute with reviews of new albums from Randy Newman and Spiritualized. That's on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Anybody see me lately? I tell you why. Anybody see me lately? I tell you why. 
Once I made me so sick That I thought that I would die And almost did too Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the title song from Randy Newman's first studio album of new songs in nine years, Harps and Angels. You wonder, what's this guy been doing for nine years? Why did it take him nine years to make a record? Well, he's been making lots and lots of money in Hollywood. Randy Newman has become the composer of choice when it comes to putting out a, uh, a Pixar cartoon movie. Among his credits, uh, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Cars. He has racked up, listen to this resume, 17 Oscar nominations, five Grammy Awards. He won a 2002 Academy Award for Best Original Song, 13 Grammy nominations, two Emmy Awards. Newman has made a huge, huge living as a Hollywood film composer, but uh, that's not the half of it. Amazing singer-songwriter. In fact, I call him the anti-singer-songwriter. When uh, we were talking about the angst-ridden James Taylor and Jackson Brown years of the early 70s, the the so-called singer-songwriter decade. Newman was standing off on the side, you know, blowing raspberries. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He was writing some of the most inventive and also the most sardonic and darkly funny pop songs of that generation. A lot of people know him perhaps best from this era for that song, Short People. Badly misunderstood song, his only top 40 hit, but over the course of his five-decade career, he's released a dozen records, and uh, about half of them rank with the very best singer-songwriter records of the last half century. Now he's got a new album out of original music, Harps and Angels, as we said earlier. Let's play a track from it before we give it our review. Here's a few words in defense of our country from Randy Newman on Sound Opinions. Uh, let's say a few words. of our country People are bad Nor are they mean Now the leaders we have While they're the worst we've had Are hardly the worst This poor world has seen For example, while we were the first few of them, they were sleeping with their sister, stashed little boys in swimming pools, and burned down the city. One of them, one of them appointed his own horse to be council of the empire. That's like vice president or something. Now, wait a minute, that's not a very good example. Here's one Spanish Inquisition. Put people in a terrible position. I don't even like to think about it. Sometimes I like to think about it. Just a few words. Defense of our country. It's time at the top. Could become a good end. We don't want your love. At this point, it's pretty much out of the question. Times like these, we sure could use a friend. That's Randy Newman with a few words in defense of our country. While the leaders we've had, they're hardly 
the worst the world has ever seen. <laughs> and he goes on to compare the Bush administration to, you know, Hitler, Stalin, Caligula, uh, and, and makes the point that, yeah, they're the worst we've ever had, but they've been worse uh, in yeah. history. Backhanded compliment, right? Oh, my God. A searing critique of life as we know it. Now, some hardcore Newman fans are saying that from this arch Ironist, This is almost shooting fish in a barrel. But I think Newman brings a particular flair to it when he's talking about the Supreme Court and he's making fun of the fact that there are, quote, a couple of young Italian fellas and a brother on the court. <laughs> but he goes on to say, these are the most joyless Italian guys I've ever seen. <laughs> and I quote again, as for the brother, well, Pluto's not a planet anymore either. His level of satire is, I mean, you know, we've been waiting 11 years for this record. All we've had is Jon Stewart. Mm -hmm. This good. But that's not all that Newman does. There are the political songs. There are also the personal songs. He laughs at himself as much as he laughs at the world around him when he's talking about uh, his inability to play baseball well on potholes or his uh, human shortcomings (laughs) where he lets everyone down in marriages that have failed. And the guy is a treasure. And the fact that this music is all delivered over the new New Orleans shuffle piano groove that he Mm -hmm. loves so dearly. You know, he is a devotee of Fats Domino. I think that coupling political songs at this point in time over that timeless New Orleans sound, I'm sorry, but that's about as poignant as popular music can get. It's brilliant. And if he's kind of a little out of step here and there, he's making fun of Jackson Brown all throughout a song called A Piece of the Pie. Well, you know, Jackson Brown deserves to be made fun of. He takes a shot at John Mellencamp and also one passing nod at Bono as if he was really (laughs) almost too afraid to even take on Bono. I think that song would have been better if the whole song was about what a grandstander Bono was, but you know, I'm still giving it a buy it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Well, Jim, this is a sardonic campaign speech just in time for the, the primaries, as far as I'm concerned. It is well-timed. It is politically right on point. The country is unraveling on, on many levels. Newman is here on the sidelines once again satirizing what's going on. It's not sort of this dark and dire woe is me stuff. These are mockumentary type of protest <laughs> songs. It's almost like he's doing a mockery of a protest song. And, it, and it's funny. He makes you laugh out loud. There is not a pompous bone in Randy Newman's body. I think that's how he can get away with all this stuff because he realized, you know, I'm kind of a schlub too. And as you said, the music is wonderful. There are many pre-rock influences here. Somebody expecting uh, anything to do with the last 40 years of music is probably going to be disappointed because his reference points, as he said, Fats Domino, you know, a lot of these Louisiana, New Orleans pianists, uh, somebody like Mose Allison from the jazz world, that sort of laconic delivery. He doesn't sound like a guy who's all that uh, potent. And then you listen to it and you go, man, this guy is really nailing it. He's funny. He's dark. And at the same time, the, the, the music has a bounce to it, a lightness to it that makes it really easy to listen to. It's nothing new in terms of what Newman's been doing throughout his career. He's been making records like this all along. But the fact that he hasn't come out with a new record in nearly 10 years, I think, just makes you appreciate him all that much more. And he truly is an American treasure and an original. There's nobody else that really sounds like him. I've got to go buy it all the way on this one. I'm with you. Two buy it's on Randy Newman. That is a song called The Waves Crash In from the new spiritualized album Songs in A and E. 
Greg, I think a very uh, fitting lyrical evocation of what spiritual highs does. They build it up, they crash <laughs> it down, they build it up again. And they've been doing it very effectively since the early 90s. Jason Spaceman Pierce first surfaced in the music world as one of two co-founders of the band Spaceman 3. They were really the proto-shoegazer band, bringing psychedelia into a new generation that would explode in the so-called English shoegazer movement of the early 90s, bands like My Bloody Valentine and Ride, and even at the tail end of it, Oasis. Although Spaceman 3 were always much darker and druggier. In fact, everything you need to know about the entire Pierce aesthetic can be summed up in the title of one Spaceman 3 collection. I quote, Taking drugs to make music to take drugs to. <laughs> <laughs> the title of the new one, Songs in A&E, actually refers to, in Britain, they call it the Accident and Emergency Room. Here mm-hmm. in America, it's just the Emergency Room. Jason Pierce had a uh, serious brush with death. He uh, was in the hospital for months after contracting in 2005 complications from pneumonia, basically complete respiratory failure. He was on a breathing machine. Spiritualized, I think, were at their best in the early 90s. There were three incredible albums in a row, Laser Guided Melodies, Pure Phase, and Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in Space, between 92 and 97. Since then, they've released two albums, Let It Come Down and Amazing Grace, neither of them sounding like a surprise anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, well, we heard what this group does. They do it well, but, but we've heard it before. Now comes this record. We'll give our opinion in a minute and talk a little bit more about what the spiritualized sound is, but I think we ought to play this song before we go much farther. It's called Death Take Your Fiddle by Spiritualized from the new Songs in A&E on Sound Opinions. Think I'll drink myself into a coma I'll take every way out I can find With morphine, codeine, whiskey, they won't alter The way I feel now, death is not around So death, take your fiddle Play a song for me Play a song used to sing One that brought you close to me Play a song and I will sing along I think I'd like to take myself to heaven Cause I've been there many times before And Jesus Christ, I don't know about I've been struck a thousand times or more So death, take your fiddle Play a song for me Play a song used to sing The one that brought you close to me Play a song Death Take Your Fiddle from the new spiritualized album Songs in A&E. 
you can very clearly hear the sound of a what sounds like a respirator to yeah, me yeah. Uh, as the rhythm track in that particular record, a reference to uh, Pierce's long stay in the hospital, as you pointed out, Jim, a near fatal bout of double pneumonia. And uh, certainly the subtext for this record, although Pierce claims that most of the songs for the record were already being written or had been written before he actually had that hospital stay, and he came out and, and people are making too much of it. But he's also said to people that, well, you're making too much of the drug references on the previous albums. And I think Jason yeah. protests too much. Well, you have to realize it's clear this is a subtext. There's for that it. psychedelic ideal of the journey toward the white light. Yeah. You know, and his entire career has been devoted to that in one way or another. Spiritual psychedelic transcendence. No doubt about it. I think he's making his version of soul music. He loves what Marvin Gaye did and Stevie Wonder and those type of artists. And I think he's channeling it into his own particular breed of psychedelia. There are basically three types of spiritualized song. They're the garage rock, feedback-saturated rockers, these big, robust spiritual anthems, and then you have the downcast ballads. And, and this, is a, this record is a mix of all three of those. Woven together with these, uh, there's about a half dozen instrumental interludes, which mm-hmm. I really could do without after a while. I, I really found those kind of annoying. Really? And, and I'm edging towards the Burn It rating on this no! record because of that, Jim. I think he was trying to make a big, cohesive statement. A lot of people are calling this the best since, ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space. I'll I'm give it that it much. That. It is the best album since then, but the previous two weren't that good at all. And I don't hear enough new moves from Jason Pierce on this particular record to justify a buyer rating. I think he is, in a way, repeating himself. And there's way too many slow, druggy, okay, we know you're in decline. We can hear it in your voice. It sounds a lot weaker after that hospital stay. We get the idea. I just wish this had been said more concisely. Well, I'm thinking that you did not listen on headphones in the dark with the lava lamp. And I think <laughs> you're right that you're, about you're that. I, I missed the lava lamp. You're that. missing something key. I mean, the interludes, Greg, I mean, how do you miss it? You know, the, the whole point of a spiritualized live show is that there is this ebb and flow between songs. Right. I think this is the first time he's tried to do that on album. I don't think you were in the proper, <laughs> shall I say, frame of mind. Did not take enough drugs. When you, uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. On the other hand, I just saw them live uh, and as did you at Pitchfork? Well, they were uh, great live. The no Pitchfork doubt about Music it. Festival. They were playing as the twilight set over the park, mm-hmm. and there's fifteen thousand people in a, in a baseball field, and they're mesmerized. I think you need to buy spiritualized songs in A and E, and I think you'll love it if you do. I think you need to go see him on tour before you buy this record. <laughs> <laughs> You're a cruel man, Mr. Cott. But what do we have on next week's show? Next week we're going to have one of our classic album dissections that we do periodically, Jim. The 40th anniversary of one of the great albums of all time, Johnny Cash's At Folsom Prison. Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from our man Dylan Peterson. Thanks to Tom Ewald for helping arrange the club panel. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, a guy who did some time, I hear, in, in the height of the hardcore punk era as the bouncer at the 930 Club, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Jim. Hi, Greg. Uh, listening to your I'm So Wrong show, 
Greg, I hold you in high esteem. I always value your opinion. However, I disagree on Oasis. They are nothing but thieves. They're plagiarists. Blatant, blatant, blatant plagiarists. I don't think they have any talent other than being able to play their instruments. Today is gonna be the day that they're gonna throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you gotta do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Personally, I meet the Gallagher boys, I'm gonna kick the pants off them just because they're so obnoxious. They deserve it. And um, I have to also disagree with you on YouTube. I'm sorry. I don't get it. I've never gotten it. Maybe boy. Maybe I understood boy. But after that, they've completely lost me. I, I, I don't get it. Sorry, fellas. I don't know who you're singing to, but it ain't me. In any case, thanks, guys. Keep talking about rock and roll. Hi, this is Donna from Chicago. I was so interested in your show this week because, I don't know, it's just interesting that you would come back and, and admit that you had made some mistakes in your opinions in the past. And two of the albums that you chose, Radiohead, uh, OK Computer, and U2, um, Octone Baby, are two of my favorite albums. And so it was really exciting to hear that you had come back and found it for sure up there in um, albums that you're interested in also. Anyways, I just wanted to share that with you and keep up the good work. Hi, this is Patty from Chicago. Um, first, what do you have against exterminators, uh, Greg? I mean, why condescendingly mention what someone does to make a decent living? So are you saying that you realize your original opinion of Jesus Jones was erroneous due to your encounter with the bass player coming to your home as an exterminator? My one little anecdote about Jesus Jones is that the bass player and the, gr- and the uh, band ended up showing up at my house four or five years later as an exterminator based in Chicago. So uh, needless to say, Jesus Jones didn't go quite as far as I thought they might. Now, the implications of your flashback are that A, you have an elitist view of exterminators, and B, your opinion of a band is swayed based on their longevity. Excuse me. Uh, by the way, you didn't bother telling us what the bass player has really been up to recently, musically or otherwise. Um, besides your retraction comments um, being so typical revenge of the nerds, it was just plain lazy. You pick right here, right now, and a blue-collar job as your evidence to support your retraction. That is just lazy. Hey there, guys. This is Mike from Oak Park, Illinois. Great show. Love to listen to you guys every time I get a chance. Love your review of the new Old Steady record. Uh, agree with you, but got to take issue with comments about Craig Finn. First off, I don't think he has literary aspirations. I think he's quite literary. I also have to say that I don't really think he reinvented himself after Lifter Fuller, and he sounds just like Craig Finn on Lifter Fuller records. He's the unholy spawn of Elvis Costello, Janine Garofalo, Bruce Springsteen, and Johnny Rotten all put together in one sea-sorted night. 
keep up the good work. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. There's going to come a time when the true scene leaders will forget where they differ and get big picture because the kids at the shows, they'll have kids. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.